0: With regard to virtuous conduct and practical actions and character, this science, above all things, could make men see clearly, from the constancy, order, symmetry, and calm which are associated with the divine, it makes its followers lovers of this divine beauty, accustoming them and reforming their natures, as it were, to a similar spiritual state. So said Ptolemy in the Almagest.
1: College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco.
2: All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast, joined by Larissa Bianco. And our very special guest today, Dr. Andrew Seely. How are you doing,
0: Dr. Right, Seeley? Good. good to be on with you. Good to see you it's too. good
2: to be on with you, too. For those of you who don't know, and I, I imagine many of you do, Dr. Seely is a uh, professor, or tutor at St. Thomas Aquinas College, uh, on currently on sabbatical, as I understand it, uh, director of the Arts of Liberty Project for the University of Dallas founding director of, for the Institute of Catholic Liberal Education, and most importantly to us on the board of directors, a director for the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated, and without him, we would not be, or perhaps be in, be in much uh, poorer shape. So Dr. Seely, it's really an honor to have you here back with us again.
1: Thanks very much.
2: Thank you. I want to talk to you about a beautiful little article you wrote for the mm-hmm. arts of Liberty project called the spirit of mathematics. Mm-hmm. And, uh, many, many of our listeners might have a similar experience of studying math and geometry at the high school level, for instance, or probably even earlier than that. And, uh, having very negative experience with it. there's a certain kind of soul who might have thrived with it. Um, We all probably know somebody like that for my part. I was never one of them. I got, I got through it. I was able to pass the test. I was able to, you know, use the Pythagorean theorem and stuff like that. Uh, But it was never an art. It was always very tedious for me. Larissa, Mm -hmm. you can probably relate. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, and then one day as an undergraduate where I was studying the liberal arts in in their authentic sense, and somebody told me something about geometry that just changed my world. And I learned the first thing about geometry that day when, actually, another another uh, AMI board member and and director, Doctor Stephen Courtright, told me uh, a point is that which has no parts. And I learned the first thing is that's what is that Euclid's first. Is that a postulate? Is that right? Definition. proposition,
1: definition.
2: And definition. Sorry. Yes, definition. And see, I didn't. I didn't uh, even do so well there. But but I learned something in that moment that was for the first time beautiful and arithmetic or geometric, and and then my my world was kind of opened up. Why why do people have such a negative experience with math? What are we doing wrong in education? That makes math a chore and not a beautiful art form.
1: Uh, let's see. Well, I would recommend that people read Paul Lockhart's um, Mathematician's Lament for a very uh, insightful, witty, powerful um, uh, complaint about all of this, um, stronger than a complaint, um, a scathing condemnation of K 12 math education from a mathematician who um, uh, Paul Lockhart. Uh, is a Columbia PhD in mathematics i think he but he taught high school for uh, decades in, in new york city <clears throat> and he says his uh, his accusation there is that there's no mathematics is taught in k12 education if by mathematics you mean the kind of thing that i as a mathematician love doing the kind of thing that made me want to be devote my life to mathematics it's not done at all um, so uh why is that it's kind of very I suppose very uh, involved in many layers but um, let's uh, I think uh, an important part of it is that um, everything is ordered to algebra and it's ordered to algebra for the sake of primarily I think doing mm-hmm. transcendental calculus and, um, and they don't even teach algebra in what I think is the is is the is the way which would make it exciting. Um, so you come into algebra, algebra. If you read Descartes' um, presentation of algebra of his uh, his his uh, reworking of algebra and making it the powerful uh, instrument of the mind that it is today, um, which is in his book called the Geometry, um, the what uh, the way that he um, let me see I just got messed up. Let me come back. The uh, I think what one of the things that's super exciting about algebra is that if you learn to think well with it, it will give you the power to solve many problems, many um, yes, real world problems. And Descartes presented it that way. That's what's exciting about it. In order to do that, you have to learn the rules. Of equations that have nothing immediately to do with interesting problems. So that's where we begin our algebra education, is with just training the young in the ways of the equation, of the quadratic equation, when they have no reason to care at all about doing quadratic equations. They never experience, I think, the real power and excitement of that kind of thinking and they don't even approach it as a way of training your mind they just approach it as a whole bunch of rules to be memorized and applied and then when they come to apply them to world real world problems they they just pick they pick the most banal banal, um uninteresting problems to to work on yeah. So you don't they don't they don't they don't uh, treat anything sort of with um, that it had historical significance or that you could kind of see as being an exciting problem for young people. Um, so anyway, I think it's I think one is everything is ordered to algebra, which is for the sake of transcendental calculus, which none of us, not many people do anyway. Um, and then secondly, they approach algebra just by teaching you the ways of the equation. As a rule, as a rule based game, um, without really trying to show you why you would want to do it
2: okay, so let's I have so many questions, but let's zoom out because this is the way most education is pitched to students anyway, but that is it's it's good because it's useful. And certainly mathematics, algebra, geometry is useful. Is there a case to be made for mathematics and geometry as an art? that is beautiful in itself apart from its practicality.
1: Um, Absolutely. And the, that's, I think, what what was at the heart of Lockhart's mathematician's lament is that, is that the beauty that he finds in mathematics, the imaginative play that he finds in mathematics is completely sucked out of um, any presentation that you'll find in your normal K-12 curriculum.
2: So make okay. let's make just make the elevator pitch real quick for the the beauty of math apart from its usefulness. Why um, why is it why is it beautiful?
1: Uh, let's see. Yeah, it through mathematics and mathematical thinking, you can come to see with a with a um, sharpness and clarity of mind an argument the reasons that underlay beautiful patterns that you find in things. So um, uh, the the ways in which geometric figures are um, interesting geometric figures or patterns, the coming to know um, what those things are like with a precision that the mind can achieve Apart from whether you can construct it or not, apart from whether you can actually do the, the drawing that's necessary to make it really sharp and good, your mind can see the truth of, of the beauty, the beautiful things that you that you're presented with. So um, you know, this is something that uh, I think many people experience if you get as far as Apollonius when you're doing some ancient mathematics, but um Apollonius, who is the ancient mathematician who did the thorough investigations of the conic sections—ellipses, parabolas, and hyperbolas—he um, proves that when you have a hyperbola, which he just gets by cutting a cone, he places, he just runs a a plane through a cone, a conic surface, in a certain way, and then he says you have this kind of beautifully opening up smooth curve, and he proves that. It'll widen out infinitely, and as it widens, it becomes closer and closer to being a straight line,
2: mm.
1: so it never becomes straight. But the further you go along, it's always closer to being a straight line than it was before, but it will never actually become straight unless you can get to infinity. Um, wow. That's just a, a beautiful, elegant... Um, Truth about something which you might never, you might think never exists—a hyperbola. Now it turns out, as so often in mathematics, if you pursue mathematics for the sake of its beauty and its imaginative power, you do end up finding incredible uses of it that weren't, that often just were never dreamed of, and the hyperbola is one of them. It's the way that you know they uh, got out of Star Trek; they get out of most of their difficulties. By doing the hyperbolic slingshot around the around some great planet, that was um, that was a kind of tried and true. Yeah, disaster thing.
2: That's how they get through uh, around the planet in Interstellar too, as I recall. I don't know if you have yeah. seen that one.
1: Yeah, yeah. hyperbolic gravity. Well, since st- we're
2: talking about space, how how do the mathematical and geometric arts precede the study of something like astronomy and music for that matter? Can you just give us, what is the relationship between math music and the heavenly studies?
1: Um, depends on what you mean by math. Cause in some ways you'd say those are all math. Um, if you talk about the, the um, quadrivium disciplines, the um, algebra, which are the mathematical The mathematical liberal arts that are meant to free the mind, um, astronomy and music are included among them. Uh, If you mean by math, um, the uh, abstract, um, a study of quantitative figures which are not uh, not thought of as being in the real world or it doesn't matter whether they are or not, then um, arithmetic and geometry, the study of different kinds of interesting numbers. And the, the mathematical study, or the uh, yeah, the mathematical study of different kinds of interesting shapes, um, those laid the groundwork for the discovery in both. I guess it's it's an example of what I was talking about, really. Yes. Um, that the the learning learning the ways of number and of shape ends up having applications in um, understanding of music and of the stars that really weren't anticipated, the, especially the music. Um, I mean there's the great story about Pythagoras that uh, he he was uh, walking along one day and he heard um, he heard the anvils, the, the uh, blacksmiths banging away at their anvils. And as he listened to about four or five of them hammering away, he heard musical intervals. He he heard really um, the the octave, the fifth, the fourth, those musical intervals. And so he said, whoa, how is that happening? And then the the story goes on that he had the anvils, um, sorry, the hammers, I think, weighed very carefully. And he found out that the anvils that sounded like they were an octave apart had a two to one ratio weight ratio, oh wow! And the ones that had the fourth that not like they had the fourth apart they had a four to three ratio, and the fifth had a three to two ratio. And so he said, "Look, here are numbers in the in the real world, and that I guess that was part of Pythagoras being convinced that numbers not only are they fascinating themselves, but they reveal the secrets of the natural world and they reveal the mysteries of God."
2: Yeah. What, what's so beautiful about the Fibonacci sequence? Cause that sort of seems to inform and align with musical beauty, architectural beauty, artistic beauty. Why are those numbers and those ratios so amazing?
1: You know, I'm just going to punt on that because I've never really studied the Fibonacci sequence. Are you don't serious? Tell, don't tell anybody that. I mean, I have a vague sense of it, but no, I've not done the whole get excited about it yet. I should do that.
2: It's so exciting. It's not, the it's other, not the other,
1: word. not in Ptolemy. Not the other your, one that I'm just learning
2: words. about, speaking yeah. of musical tones and frequencies, is this move from 432 to 440 hertz as the middle A. Have you heard of this?
1: Um, not in that regard. Tell me more, but I think I know. yeah. My... So,
2: so and there's a whole YouTube rabbit hole our, our listeners can go go into if they're interested in this, but music was always tuned, uh, you know, the Baroque, they call it the Baroque A, I think, but basically Mm -hmm. that middle A was 432 hertz, okay? And then sometime in the 20th century, about during the advent and popularization of rock and roll music, that middle A was moved to 440 hertz. And there have been all kinds of studies on the difference that tones to 432 versus 440 cause in the human soul. 440 Ooh. is sort of um, generates locomotion, compliance, uh, and and just sort of falling in line. Sort of thinking. 432 is more uh, opens the soul to the transcendent, more contemplative, and it's still many music is always done until the bastardization of music in the 20th century. But it wasn't by accident. That's sort of the theory is that this this monumental move was made sort of on purpose for crowd control purposes and there's all kinds of conspiracy theories you can get into on it, but well, it is interesting.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, um, the one I'm familiar with more is the equal temperament scandal, if you will. What is this? <laughs> is,
2: tell, tell me about it. I've not, I've not well, heard of so it.
1: This is really interesting. I, mean, I, 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 in the article you're talking about that I wrote, I, I certainly want people to, ex, to come to understand and be formed in a large part by the quadrivium, by the ancient mathematical approaches but I also see the beauty and power of, of modern mathematical approaches like you find an algebra and calculus. And so we not want to cheat people that. The reason I bring that up is um, equal temperament is a similar kind of um, manipulation of the ratios of the strings that cause the vibrations that allow us to hear music. That occurred in the 18th century. And it's, it was uh, what unleashed the power of Mozart uh, because, so this is um, uh, up until that time, the way that um, instruments were tuned was according to what they called the just scale, where um, they made sure that as much as they could, the octaves and the fifths and the major third. So that's those make our, our major triads, which is one of the most beautiful beautiful sounds in music. Um, they made sure that those are tuned right to the three to the two to one, three to two, and five to four ratios. But when that happened, if they wanted to shift keys and go from the key they were playing in, they started in to another key, they could they could only go do a little bit of modulation without having um, discrepancies that got noticed and started to sour those uh, one of the fifths in particular. So they were limited in, in the amount of modulation they could do, switching from key to key. Hmm. When they developed the equal-tempered clavier, the piano, what they did was they said, just forget about we're We're not going to tune anything right. We're just going to take the discrepancy and smooth it out over the whole octave. But it'll be so small that you can't notice it. So now what they do is instead of trying to make fifths at 3 to 2 ratio they just make all of the all of the little intervals the square root of 2. So the all the all the um all the tuning on the piano between white note and black note is the ratio of the square root of 2 to 1. So they bring in irrationality into the heart of the piano. Wow. So that allows that allows them to have complete freedom to modulate, and you wouldn't have had Mozart, and you wouldn't have had classical music if they had not had that complete range of freedom to to go through the, all the, the whole circle of fifths.
2: Wow, that's mind blowing. Yeah, I feel I think, somewhat cheated.
1: And some people will say that they can hear that, and they really it really bugs. No, most people can't. And uh, I think they've, they've, they've done some scientific studies. You no, know, people can't even notice it. But
2: yeah, and music <laughs> certainly affects the soul like nothing else. I mean, Plato talks about this explicitly. Uh, it's how you move people to do things. It's how you educate people. It's sort of right up there with gymnastic in Plato's eyes as far as formation of, of young people and society. hmm.
1: It's even the, it's the top. He says, yeah, music is much more important than gymnastic. Gymnastic forms the body to be a, a musical instrument of the soul, but you have to really make the soul musical. Wow. Yeah, And I think that that's, I really think that, um I think that this is something that should really be in the ordinary high school curriculum is, is, uh, is a, a quarter on the, on the mathematics of music so that you see, Maybe even a semester. <laughs> but um so that I, mean, I think it's one of the most important things about human nature is that we respond emotionally to herd mathematical ratios.
2: Herd H E R D, yes. Yeah. What,
1: that which we... Are that true that's true too, but H-E-A-R-D.
2: Okay, okay, I wasn't sure where you're going with that. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
1: Um, so our souls, even in their, even in their, um, even what a lot of people think is distinctively human about us, which is our emotions are, are attuned to mathematics.
2: That's for sure. Mm -hmm. And it's so, uh, Larissa, you probably have a lot to, to say and ask about this, but it's so, uh, scary how much frequency, you know. Has to do with our souls. Music is just a frequency, as is radio frequency, as is microwave frequency, and you know we don't want to go down the tinfoil hat 5G rabbit hole. But there's a lot of evidence to show that um, you know, for instance, when the radio was being first invented and popularized, a lot of other things were happening around the time of World War One, Spanish flu, uh, and you wonder how much of our souls are being formed by invisible frequencies as much as audible frequencies, or I should say inaudible frequencies, as much as audible frequencies. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or am I just a crazy person for even thinking it?
1: <laughs> um, <coughs> I think we know enough about human nature to say that what you're talking about is possible. Um, I don't know what the evidence is, whether it's happened or not. But. Right. Larissa go. I'd also let me just I'd also be hesitant to I don't want to um
2: get in trouble.
1: I'd, I'd want to manipulated. On the other hand, I would be hesitant to give away a lot of the um the great ability we have to listen to music of all eras and all kinds and, and to be to be formed by it and delight in it. Um if I weren't absolutely convinced that this was pretty sinister. So <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts, but I'm going to start with this. So one of the things that, you know, in high school, especially when you're learning geometry, you're told that it needs to be perfect and you need to use your protractor and get that as perfect as possible circle and triangles. But with Euclid, I have been told that when you're say if you're doing proposition one. It doesn't matter if it's perfect. In fact, it should be ugly because what you're doing is the form is up here. And what you're doing is just a physical representation of that, but it's the form and the the truth that matters. Can you talk about why that is, or if you know your thoughts on that?
1: Um. Yeah, let's see. I w- I wouldn't say that it that you should make it ugly. Um, I think that when somebody can actually go to the board and draw a circle that looks great, that's that's a wonderful thing. Uh, but it doesn't matter that much. As long as you don't distort it, as long as it's what you've drawn is not kind of unrecognizable as a circle, um, it's uh, when, as long as it looks decent enough, then it's, it's a good enough representation for you to imagine the proper circle. So, uh, and then your mind can follow the steps of the argument and not, they, um, recognize well since this is a circle then the two the the two different lines that I've drawn from the center they're equal even though because it's a it's I can see on the board that it's squished I know that those lines are not equal but it's not distracting me from seeing the truth of the perfect circle um and I think that one of the one of the neat things to think about is that how, how much your imagination is at work when you're looking at something like that on the board? Um, because the the reason that you can look at it and say, you know what, that's kind of squished compared to a circle, is because you can see with your mind's eye where the circle ought to be. <clears throat> so you're actually, and I don't know what the be interesting to know what the science is behind this, but you're actually picturing a perfect circle to yourself when you're looking at a circle and saying, that's not perfect. And in yeah. fact, I you can even see exactly where you would have to correct it in order to make it perfect. So, um, and that's, that's what the real mathematics is about. The mathematical argument is about that perfect circle that you can imagine and understand what you're drawing on the board is just an aid to, to, uh, working with that.
2: Larissa, have you ever seen a perfect circle? No, no, never seen a straight line. No, no. You put even in a book, right? If you're looking at a computer printed polygon, mm-hmm. if there's ink on the page, that is not two dimensional. If the lines that draw them have any breadth, that is not a polygon. So we've mm-hmm. never even seen things like circles, lines, triangles in with these eyes, right? Mm-hmm. But somehow we know what they are because why, Dr. Seely? Why, why do I know what a triangle is? Why do I know what a circle is? Mm-hmm. If I've never seen one in real life. How is this possible?
1: Yeah. That's a uh, fantastic question to be talking about, (laughs) and opens up the door to philosophy. Um, I think that it's it's an interplay of mind and imagination where you can imagine the sides of a triangle as thin and straight as possible, and yet, because you can imagine it, you also know that those are not lines as you're defining them, because, to, because your mind says a line must be a breathless length. The boundary <coughs> the boundary of a figure can't have any breadth. If it has any any breadth to it, then mm-hmm. that itself will have a boundary. So I think it's a combination of the imagination taking you as far as it can go, and the mind saying, "And that's not far enough, but you pointed the way. Now I, now I see with my mind what it is that I wanted. And by the way, I really like that you started out by, by bringing up the uh, definition of a point is that which has no part. Um, one of the things that came up in my high school experience when I went into calculus and you're dealing with differential, you know, you're going to do differential calculus and then they then they give you the little DX and they say, well, that's a differential. It's like, well, how big is that? Now, that really bugged me. It's like, how, how, how big are those things? And the math teacher had no time for that. I don't even know if she understood. I think she understood why I was asking the question, but it's like, okay, we'll just accept it and go on. I really could not think about calculus because I didn't know the answer to that question. So when I encountered in Euclid the definition that a point is that which has no part, it's like, yeah, that was my problem. <laughs> They wanted the differentials to be kind of a fuzzy, that's right. I don't know how big it is. Maybe it's got, maybe it's nothing, but it's there and you can work with it and you can multiply it. It's like, no, if it's a point, a point is that which has no part. And if it's not a point, you got to tell me what it is.
2: Bingo. And that's that's a great pitch I've used in the past to convince young people to study the liberal arts at the undergraduate level because, you know, they come through this training. I won't even call it education, but they come through training at the high school level. And I, I say, Well, you know, you've studied geometry, right? And like, yeah, I did two, three years of it, and I do pre-calculus now. And I say, Great. Well, what tell me the first thing about geometry? Blank stare. And well, I know how to do things. You know, I know how to calculate things. Uh, great. What's the first thing you you've studied geometry? What's the first thing about it? And you can you can get somebody to realize pretty quickly that they haven't really studied the art. Of geometry, and there's I I think because they haven't touched Euclid. And when you do, I mean, what's your experience when you see a student encounter Euclid for the first time after doing practical geometry for years in the classroom?
1: Um, well, the when I work with um students at Thomas Aquinas College, they're usually really primed for all the (coughs) kinds of questions that you'd want to raise about those early definitions. Um, uh, They find the, I mean, you you can fight for days about what the point has no part means, whether a line is really a breathless length, If they, and they go, you know, pretty quickly into, they pretty quickly leave the math behind and they're looking at the, they're trying to look for a philosophical account uh, behind that. Um, They're, uh, they're usually pretty eager about it. Now, more dramatic to me, I mean, so that's just a lot of fun, really, I think. Um, More dramatic to me is working with adult learners who had the kind of bad experience of mathematics that um, we all had, and then who uh, encounter some Euclid for the first time. And I think that they... They tend to be really deeply impressed and um, they, they get into the questions about how is this argument going? How is the argument working? Have we drawn them in just the right way? Do we need protractors and things like that? Why don't we? Um, they, they really get into those sorts of questions. as um, <coughs> And it's, it, for them, it's like the first time they've ever had any interesting thought about mathematics.
0: So at the same time, in your in the article you posted, you said that when you brought Euclid to high school math teachers, they rejected it, and they've said, i uh, you are advocating approaches that I had to train myself out of in mm-hmm. order to do mathematics." Um, so can you talk about well, what what exactly are they having to talk? Mm-hmm. Like, what are these approaches, and why do you think they're rejecting it so hard?
1: Yeah. Um- okay so um, the, I think that the, the the crux of the matter is the imaginative the, the imaginative character of Euclidean geometry and of the ancient geometry general ge- ancient mathematics generally that's at, at odds with what makes for effective algebra and algebraic thinking. Um, so, I was advocating this particular story. I was, uh, this particular workshop, I was advocating for doing Euclid with high school students because it's imaginative. And so they can actually picture it for themselves. And so it's, a, it's an encounter with something imaginative, beautiful, neat, patterned. And because they can, they can see it for themselves, it's an experience of knowing the truth for yourself. But the, uh, the, the math teacher that spoke, <coughs> he hadn't been trained as a math teacher, but he was just a mathematician. He trained as a mathematician, they came to teach it in the high schools. And he said rightly that um, if you're going to be able to be effective at algebra, what you really have to do is try to suck the quantities that you want to think about out of their, their physical or imaginative embodiment, so that all you really focus on are the relations, Um, Is this greater than that? Is it it greater by how much? Um, How many factors does it have? Uh, Are those factors the same factors or not? That's what you really want to pay attention to. And so the first, the beginning step of solving problems algebraically is to take the quantitative relationships away from the imaginative or or physical embodiment. Um, and so then you can see <clears throat> that, oh, this problem that has to do with hydraulics is exact, involves exactly the same factors that this problem that has to do with um, aerodynamics. And that this problem, this problem that has to do with some kind of curve uh, or curved space, they're all the same kind of problems because the factors and the relationships are the same. I end up with the same equation. All I have to do is solve that one equation And then I get solutions for every kind of variety of problems, even though they're very, very different in their embodiment. And so that's, I think that that was probably the kind of thing he was getting to, is that to the extent that you rely upon your imagination, you're going to be hampered in the the pattern recognition, the equation pattern recognition that makes algebra successful. Does that help?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that makes
2: so math in a way uh, and all on all of these arts. uh, So math, geometry, what what are the what are the quadrivial arts again? Can you just list them off?
1: Uh, Arithmetic, geometry, music and astronomy.
2: There's something about these that can really bring the soul to the contemplation of heaven in, in a way that other things cannot. Uh, and I'm even struck by, and I want I want to uh, ask you this exegetical question real quick. I know I know we didn't talk about this before the podcast, but in the book of Revelation, you ready for this chapter oh, no, twenty one? No, no. You know where wait. I'm going here. No, you're gonna love this. <coughs> Heaven is described by Saint John as a cube. The city, or the uh, see. I'll just read it. The angel who spoke to me had a gold measuring stick to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city was shaped like a cube because it was just as high as it was wide. The angel measured the city; as about twenty four hundred kilometers high and twenty four hundred kilometers wide. The angel measured the wall, and by our measurements, it was sixty meters high. What a strange thing to have in the Book of Revelation.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Why is heaven a cube? And, and then he goes on to say that it's got 12 foundations. So a cube with 12 foundations, you know what a tesseract is, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Heaven is a tesseract. It's a Strange thing. And Christopher Nolan puts this in again, again in his movie Interstellar, which I think is, has something to do with this. Mm-hmm. But uh, do, have you ever contemplated this scripture passage and why heaven would be uh, geometrically characterized by the evangelist?
1: Um, I have not, this is, um, but this is the very sort of thing that St. Augustine, I'm sure loved to think about. And he, he, uh, really, I think, encouraged the study of numbers primarily because understanding, um, numbers and their factors and their, um, their character helps you to interpret things in the scriptures like this.
2: Yep. The,
1: the, um, we
2: could do a whole stuff. class in the Magnus fellowship on this question. I think.
1: Yeah, it's um, we should. now. I think that uh, I'm hampered in questions like this, partly because I have uh, I tend to be a literalist. I prefer literal readings to heavily symbolic readings, and especially ones that I don't feel like I can justify or argue for against other interpretations. And so <clears throat> a lot of this um, a lot of that kind of looking at the <clears throat> the numbers in scriptures uh, in the scriptures, Um, seems to me fanciful but it's also connected with a I don't really think that we do much arithmetic even in even the in the recovery of classical mathematics I don't think that we tend to do much arithmetic at least as the ancients understood it where it was not the um, it wasn't the study of you know calculation and multiplication and things like that Um, but it was the study of Cool numbers in, in.